This is WCPO FM 1051 on your FM dial, Cincinnati, Ohio. WKRC, Cincinnati. This is the nation station. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast. It's episode 23. I'm P.F. Wilson, content director for Cincy Shirts and our sibling site, OldSchoolShirts.com. Today on our show, former NBA referee Mike Mathis. I said, Yubi, if you're ever calling a game in the finals and I'm involved and I can't tell whether that ball's out or not, we're not allowed to go look at that. But I'm going to get my three referees together and we're going to look, I'm going to look at you and I'm going to go with my eyes. <laughs> Mike has some great stories. Holy cow. He uh, started off here in Cincinnati, originally worked for P&G, but then got into uh, refereeing basketball games and just worked his way up the ranks, and well, there you have it. You'll hear about why he threw Charles Barkley out of a game mid-free throw attempt. Mike also talks about his work with Foster Care and his own Mathis Foundation, and about the amazing thing Larry Bird did at a charity auction here in town. Mike also figures into the history of Cincy Shirts, so Josh tells us about that. So lots of good stuff coming up. Also, be sure to listen for the promo code at the end of this episode so you can save 20% on your next Cincy Shirts or Old School Shirts order. So here we go. Let's talk to Mike. Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati, Ohio. I come from C-I-N-C-I-N-N-A-T-I-Cincinnati. CincyShirts.com in Cincinnati. Our guest this week is a good friend of mine, Mike Mathis, who, and we'll get into this here in a second, in an odd way is, is partly responsible for where this company is and the fact that this company even exists. Ooh, I didn't know. I'm going to learn a lot today. You did not know that, no. P.F.? No. Mike Mathis, uh... A uh, retired NBA referee and uh, one of the best people I know here in the city has done amazing work for uh, the community in this city and a lot of the children in this city who uh, weren't given a fair shot. He's he's helped uh, he's helped give a, a second chance to, and uh, we're, we'll get into all that. But yes, yeah, so. So Mike Mathis, welcome to welcome to our podcast, sir. My pleasure. So I don't know if you realize that your connection to this company or not, but if you've ever played in a uh, in a poker tournament around the city at one of the Catholic uh, organizations, there was a good chance at one time that that Mike was in charge of that that poker event. Was Brian? Did you adopt Brian O'Neill? No, he's not adopted, but he's still very much a part of our family, and that was my family's focus, and that's why the poker tournaments were what they were. Was uh, I was known as a guy that would uh, basically do anything to raise money for, for foster kids and adoptive kids, and uh, we had our own foster care and adoption agency. But uh, Brian was our, our link to getting into that because he came into our family as an eighth grader, and... Uh, he ended up going to Purcell with my kids, my three boys, and uh, from that he went to Penn State and played football and played in the NFL for three years, and our family just decided at that time that that's what we wanted to do as a family, so four boys, my wife and I, we got into the Mathis Foundation, which was to assist foster kids and get them adopted if possible, and uh, basically that was uh, our life's work, 
till a few years ago. Yeah. So Brian, uh, I met through a mutual friend. He wanted, he would come actually come over to, to our townhouse. We had a standing weekly poker game amongst friends. And um, he said, hey, I need some help with uh, this tournament that my dad's running. And I need, uh, I need some dealers. So I agreed to go to uh, a tiny church to deal Texas Hold'em for a tournament. And then after the game was over, he asked if uh, Brian asked if I would help get the equipment back to uh, to where it was stored. So we loaded it up onto a, like a U-Haul type truck, and we drove down to Dayton, Kentucky, and it was this old boarded up warehouse. And uh, we put all the tables in, and and the chips, and the chairs, and got everything unloaded. And I'm looking around at this place, and I'd never seen anything like this place. It, I mean, you were you've been in there many times before we rehabbed it. It was it, called free rent for me for a while. <laughs> <laughs> it was a uh, originally we learned that it was one of the first Krogers, and then it was a carpet and flooring company owned by a, a father and son. And then it it was nothing for I don't know fifteen years or something like that. But there were ca- there was carpet everywhere. PF. I mean, it was like rolls or just no. Like just the it. floor was carpeted, and then on the walls there were maybe like eight by eight squares of carpet, and it just went from <laughs> ceiling to floor. Am I right, Mike? That's right. Two floors of it, and it was like basically if you think that you go to like the carpet department at Lowe's and they've got like a book. That you kind of flip yeah. through. Well, this was like there's a, there is no book. Let's just staple <laughs> all of these samples to the wall so you can just look down the wall and see. Everything. I mean, it was it was insane. I'm looking around and I'm like, who who owns this building? Like, and uh, and Brian told me that one of the other men that I met that night, Owen Rassman, uh, owned the warehouse, and our t-shirt company was was very new. Uh, we were paying a screen printer. Uh, to make the shirts for us. And Darren was keeping the inventory at his house and shipping out of there. And uh, we had had the conversation of buying our own screen printing equipment. But with that, we needed to find a place to put it and work out of. So I approached, uh, I approached Owen and I said, Hey, uh, you know, what's going on with this warehouse? Is there any chance that we could print shirts out of here? And he basically said because it was empty, his insurance was through the roof to, to insure an, a building that didn't have anybody in there. And it would actually save him money if we worked out of there. So Darren and I, by ourselves, tore every piece of carpet off the wall, got it back down to... And underneath the carpet was wood paneling. So we had to get that down. We got it down to the original brick. We got the flooring up. We got all the broken window pieces out. And then uh, he he put us a, a, a dumpster on the side of the building that we would just take trash cans and wheelbarrows out and empty. And then we finally got it completely gutted, and uh, they put down a new floor. They replaced the windows. We moved in our screen printing, and that was the real foundation for what is now Cincy Shirts. But it was all because I I agreed to be a dealer in this man's poker. <laughs> tournament which there were you were doing what one a month at the time maybe at different parishes and this relationship then blossomed and i got to know mike better and i learned about his golf tournament which i want to talk about and uh and i was asked to be a celebrity in that and i was honored to be a part of that for a long time but 
but yes, a long story longer. <laughs> Mike Mathis is a is a big part of why Cincy shirts exist right now. Uh, so you know, that's a, that's a good sign uh, for the world. That's sort of like as I sit here and listen to the whole story and your reminiscence. I I just think back and I you know basically that was people helping people and then more people helping more people. So yeah. all in all, that was a good thing. What were you going to say? I was going to was that located like near where the storefront ended up being? In it was okay in Dayton, Kentucky. Yeah, 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 that was where our storefront was. We started out with the bay. The bay there was like three sections to the to that building on the ground floor. We started off with the one on the corner. We then expanded into the middle one, and then also into the third one. And um, we took over part of the basement where we would wash out our screens and. Uh, I mean, we we transformed that space to the point where another T-shirt place uh, took uh, took over the space after we left. Well, I thought so because we, we drove by there on the way to dinner one day, and I'm yeah. like, that. I think that's where our place used to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's that's where we started. And um, let's talk a bit about you, you. You said you told us how the Mathis Foundation started. What what kind of work were you doing in that? capacity well the way way everything got started i i raised uh, three sons and uh, was married uh to my bride sherry and uh all of a sudden one day I, one of my youngest an eighth grader came in and said dad uh, can we take brian in and i said uh brian's a kid that comes over and plays ball and he, he said yeah well brian o'neill then became a part of our family he's an african-american kid and they're just a great kid and he came over one day to do his laundry at the house, and uh, I watched him, and I said, Brian, what's wrong with your washer and dryer? Because he had a brother and sister, and he said, uh, they're not working. They're broke. And I said, both of them? He said, yeah. And my son, Marty, said, uh, follow him home, Dad. So I went home and come to find out that Brian was working two jobs as an eighth grader in the summertime to get his water turned on for the washer and the electric turned on for the dryer. No mom in the house. He told me his mom was in the hospital, and basically uh, she was uh, incarcerated at the time, and Brian was taking care of his brother and sister in an empty house. My gosh. And he was working two jobs to get things turned on, so I took Sherry over, and Sherry was uh, doing a lot of work with kids in the Cincinnati area, and she said, you can't do this, Brian. we got to get you into foster care and the, and your brother and sister well foster care became us we went and marty wanted brian to come to our house so we took all three of them in and uh, we took foster care classes so after about six months the other two his brother and sister wanted to live with aunts and brian said he wanted to stay with us and uh, that's 40 some years later and brian's still very much a part of our family and brian's story was one of he went to uh, Purcell and they won a state championship in football with my kid and then they he went to Penn State on a football scholarship and then he played in the NFL for three or four years and, and then he got into movies and then he got <laughs> then he got went to a movie set down at the old uh, Orange Bowl down there that's when they what movie was that? Any uh, given Sunday. Any maybe? given yeah. Sunday. Yeah, that's exactly. Right. He became a movie star as as a football player. Yeah. Sort of a, a standby kind of star, yeah. but he was. It's in really it. funny. There's a, there's a span of a several years. Uh, you know, uh, any given Sunday. Remember the Titans. Uh, the replacements. Uh, where if you see a locker room scene with where the 
team is getting a pep talk and it pans around to show all the players getting, you know, pepped up. Odds are you'll see his face in there. I mean, it was cr- it was crazy, but was he also a consultant for it, or is he just no? Like a, he was a, a he was one of the act, but he was a second actor. He yeah, wasn't yeah. no star of it, but uh, you know, to this day, I still every once in a while from the uh, <laughs> Players Guild out, what do they call them? The Actors Guild, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. In, in Hollywood, he gets some kind of a bonus check. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, and at the time he was working, the, the time I met him, he was working with the uh, the indoor football team that we had here, um, arena team, the uh, Outlaws, was the it Marshals, Marshals. Marshals. Yeah, in a way, I wrote an article about them. Did you for uh, City Beat? Yeah, I'll um I'll try to tag that in the blog post for this episode. Uh, but yeah, I wrote about so I probably met him. Yeah, both my sons were coaches on that team. I'm Brian was sort of an assistant oh, general yeah. manager. Yeah, that's when I met him. Was when he was working with the Marshals. So let's let's backtrack even further. Then, so are you Cincinnati born and raised? Yeah, I was uh, born and raised. I was born and raised in Price Hill, and uh, went to Holy Family Church and school. And then all of a sudden, uh, then come high school time, and all my buddies went to Elder, and I went south or I guess east to downtown Cincinnati to X High School. And I was in the last class that graduated downtown on 7th and Sycamore. And then uh, I went to Purdue. I was lucky enough to get some athletic money to go to Purdue when I spent four years at Purdue. And uh, two years, that's where I met my wife. And then two years in uh, Southeast Asia, at uh, Vietnam and Thailand. And then I came back home, and then I started uh, my refereeing career doing a little kids ball, eight years old and stuff. And Was that something you'd always wanted to do? I mean, No, I wanted to be a pro player, but there's very few of those, and I wasn't good enough to be a pro player. So I wanted to stay around the game, so I was an engineer at Procter & Gamble at the time. And so I refereed little kids uh, on Saturdays, and then I started doing high school ball and about three or four years, I was working in the Big Ten, Mid-American, Ohio Valley, besides working at Proctor. Uh, that's the way it got started, and I had no aspirations of being an NBA ref, and they saw me working down at an AAU tournament and asked me to come to camp, and I did, so that's, that was my path to the What's NBA. What's NBA referee camp like? What, what do well, you do there? Well, at that time, what they did is they'd find certain officials that they liked around the country, and they'd bring them to... A camp, and this camp was in Cleveland, so I just took a week's vacation and went up with a buddy of mine. He'd been trying to get in the NBA, so they came to see him work. And at the same time, they saw me and they invited both of us to Cleveland. And I got offered a job, and he didn't, poor guy. And, uh, and so, were you at Proctor when you got offered that job, and you had yeah, to decide, like, yeah. how quickly did you have to decide to leave there or take the- Well, my first decision was the first year I went up to that camp, they said, uh, we want to hire you. We, I said, well, what, what's the pay? And they said, uh, 200 a game, and we'll give you 20 games. And I said, whoa. I said, that's $4,000, and I have to give up my engineering job at P&G and my college refereeing, and it wasn't no match at all. And I said, no, I can't do that with a wife and three kids. And so I left. I said, no. I turned them down. Well, the next year, the ABA and the NBA merged. And when they merged, they wanted – more referees, but they didn't want to take back the guys that had jumped to the ABA on them. So they came and offered me a full-time job, and that's when I took it. And uh, almost 30 years later, I was still refereeing, so it worked out. 
So what was that like? I mean, uh, were you, you were a, obviously a basketball fan, but when you immediately found yourself on the court with like the greatest players in the world, was it surreal at all? Or well, I'll just give you a good example. My uh, first encounter when I got in was the year the ABA and the NBA merged, as I said, and one of the guys that came over from the ABA was Dr. J. Okay. And uh, <laughs> my first encounter with Dr. J was in Philadelphia. I'll never forget this. I was working with an old Grizzly veteran of 30 years in the league, my rookie year. And his name was Joe Gashu. And Joe asked me in the locker room before the game, he says, hey, Rook, he says, uh, Do you, have you ever seen Dr. J on the court? And I said, well, I saw him UMass with some, I saw some film of that. And he said, well, you're in for a pretty good treat out here. So we go out there, and all of a sudden, I'm watching this guy, and he's flying under the basket, dunking over his head, big afro. And your first year in the league in the NBA, you want somebody just to say something like, hey, Mike, you put your pants on right today. You yeah. know, anything yeah. positive, yeah. okay? Because yeah. if it's there's too much air in the ball, that's my fault. If the temperature of the building's wrong, that's my fault. My partner's calls, my calls, okay, everybody's on the rookies. So at the end of the first quarter, I'll never forget <laughs> Joe for this, I went to the scorer's table to get my drink of water, and Joe looked at me again. He says, hey, Rook, he says, uh, what do you think of Dr. J? And I guess I, I thought I saw everything in the Big Ten, but I saw him, and I guess I was pretty much amazed because uh, – Joe says, uh, he said, what do you think? And I said, Joe, I guess I was like a starstruck kid. I said, Joe, i never seen anything like this. This guy's flying from one side of the lane to the other. He's dunking over his head, the big Afros guy. And he says, yeah, I know, kid. He said, do me a favor, will you? And I said, what's that? He said, the second quarter, he says, stop watching him and help me referee a little bit. <laughs> he said he looked up, he looked at me three just, times under the basket. My whistle was out, and I was like. <laughs> how could you not, though? You can't. I mean, you, you I can't, can't imagine. And, you know, I'll tell you how stupid some referees can be if they think they're talent scouts in the NBA. A guy asked me uh, about refereeing, and I says, oh, there'll never be anybody as good as Dr. J. Guess yeah. what? Yeah. yeah. Jordan was yeah. in the wings. <laughs> yeah. So what was that like? Your first game well, reffing Michael well, Jordan? It was it was sort of surreal and a little bit of the same because they were two different kind of players. Dr. J was almost 6'9", and Michael was smaller than that. But Michael could do things that made referees in the NBA. He made us change our game of refereeing. There's very few guys that come in and make referees change their way of refereeing. But Jordan came in, and what we all knew was palming the ball was putting your hand under the ball. Jordan's hand was so big that when he come down the floor on a fast break, was... he cupped it, and he never had to do this. Once you saw a guy's hand do that, you just call palming, right? Yeah. Well, when he came down the floor, his hand was so big, he would delay the ball in here. He's coming right at guys, and that little delay, he's looking and seeing which foot they're on, and every, and he would make his, and he couldn't stop that. But that was traveling. Yeah. And I, I, he gave me one of the greatest compliments I ever got. I used to call that because I remember it was one of my favorite calls because nobody was calling that back in college, and I would call a guy for carrying a ball. But I never saw the palming of the ball until Jordan came in running at full speed. <laughs> so... Um, 
I called Palming on him one day up in Seattle. I'll never forget this. And he come over to me and he says, Mike, he says, come on, man. Nobody calls that crap on me. Only used a different word. And I said, I says, thank you. And he looked at me like I was crazy. So later on, he walked up. He said, what'd you say? I said, thank you. He said, no. I said, what? Nobody calls that crap. I said, Mike, that's a compliment. I said, I'm glad I call it. Nobody else does because it's palming. He said, no, I'm not palming. I'm just, he said, I'm just holding it a little. <laughs> so he gave himself away. Oh, to, to this funny. day, this day, my dad complains that they don't call traveling. Is that right? Yeah, we watched the, uh, the finals. I had me down in Orlando, uh, for the finals that the Cavs won a couple years ago. We were lucky enough to watch that with, with my dad. And, but he's kept, uh, they're not going, that guy stepped. He stepped. And he's, he's yeah, that's his Well, that's complaint. a different, I mean, I mean, the traveling probably that you guys are referring to are yeah, yeah. what the guys do now where, you know, it seems like giant. a lot more than three steps or well, whatever. I, I, I just caution people about that trail call. Not that either college, I do a little work with a college game now. But if you watch co- college traveling, anything that looks strange or any kind out of order in college, travel. Okay? First of all, the book says you've got to have possession of the ball to travel. That means I can fumble it all the way down the court as long as I don't possess it. Loophole. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and what, what that means is college referees, and I was one of them at one time, they just call something. Anything looks bad, they call traveling. When the pros, they miss on the other side, okay? They let some people get away with some steps, not a lot, but they call it, they try to be more pure because of the uh, the technical work that we get through the computers and stuff. And we have guys, I caution people, I said, you know, what are you allowed to do once you pick up the ball? First of all, you start counting steps after he picks up the ball. And okay, after his dribble, he's got the ball. Now you count one, two, and he must either shoot or pass if he's up in the air, right? Well, we got guys that can go from the top of the circle to the basket in one step. You know, it just looks like they're covering a lot of ground. And so, therefore, I'm saying that referees are taught to do it. And we get video work. <laughs> we got video work daily showing this is not a travel. Look at his foot. Look when he picked up the ball. But you, you're right, and it's hard for the fan to say. In real time. Yes. Yeah. Why is this traveling? It looks bad. It must be traveling. And guess what? The coaches in college accept that. Okay? They think, oh, that must be traveling, too, because they don't really know. Okay? <laughs> But in the pros, you'll find it more pure. But where the pros make mistakes is the pivot foot. They they make mistakes because when you stop dribbling, you one of them two feet has to be a pivot foot. So you can't move both yeah, up. Yeah. What do they do? They change pivot feet. They'll go like this yeah. and, well, I can't go there. I go to that way. And then all of a sudden, this becomes a pivot. That's traveling. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. So uh, watch that sometimes, and you'll see what I mean. But college... They call everything, which ain't even possession of the ball traveling. And then the pros, they do miss. But what they miss, they miss that Charles Barkley used to always change his pivot foot because he wanted to go this way. But that was his pivot foot, and he couldn't go that way. You see what I mean? Right, yeah. So, I think I called on that when I played on the in But the there, there's, there's, errors on, yeah, there's errors in traveling is one of the biggest ones in, in both sides. So, now, uh, sorry, I was just going to say the name he just brought up. Yes. Charles Barkley. There you go. <laughs> it's so funny because, so 
part of the golf event that uh, we'll get into here in a minute, uh, at one time we did a, a big gala the night before at the Reds Stadium. And uh, I was trying to find audio clips about Mike Mathis to play at this event. And the one that I found was Charles Barkley. Check out this audio clip. We lost this game because of one reason, Mike Mathis. And that's it. I ain't going to say nothing else. He's been a he's a bad official. He's been bad the whole time I've been in the league. I hate he came back. And he cost us this game tonight. He cost us this game tonight. And I hate he back in the league. And that's all I got to say. How did this, uh, it's, I mean, I, I know you, so I know about the, the love-hate relationship that you had with Sir Charles, but how did that start, and and what is it, how was it evolved to today? You know, to be perfectly honest, okay, I, I got to give Charles the, uh, the commendation that what he did with a six-foot, four-and-a-half-inch body uh, defies imagination. I mean, he, for six, four-and-a-half, now that's not a very big player in the NBA, he got more done, okay, by basically being a fighter under the basket and all this kind of stuff and using his body to the utmost. And uh, But what Charles had in the back of his mind was, I'll tell you a funny story about Charles, but anyway, he had in the back of his mind that he wanted to be like Mike, okay? He wanted to be like Mike. If Mike was doing this in Vegas, Charles wanted to do it. Okay? Okay. You know what I'm talking yeah, about. I do. Okay, if Mike did this with women, Charles wanted to do it. Okay, but the whole nine yards was everything like Mike. And uh, I had heard at one time uh, at a captain's meeting, Charles Barkley for Phoenix, Michael Jordan for... And captain's meetings mean nothing. You guys got anything? No. Okay, let's go. It was just a formality, but anyway... I come out there, and the first thing out of Charles' mouth to Mike was, uh, "Hey man, when are you gonna get me on the Bulls? When are we gonna be? When are we gonna play together?" Mike just stood there like this and looked at him and <laughs> shook his happening. shook in his head like that ain't happening. He said, "Why, man? Come on." He says, "We win championship because it's a team game." Well, that told me everything I wanted to hear. But anyway. He and I didn't get along because basically what it comes down to, he wanted special favors. And the one thing I made a career of was the fact that I treated the 12th man sitting on the end of the bench that never got to play much. When he got in the game, I treated him the same as I treated Michael Jordan. I called the same thing on him as I called on this guy. And I think when I retired after almost 30 years, it was a thing of, I achieved what I wanted to because I thought I was respected, okay? Yeah. But that didn't mean that Joe Barkley got special favors or Jordan got best special favors. I'm the only guy that probably – well, I was the only guy in the history to give Jordan a technical in the finals, okay? <laughs> he never got one of them. Very few technicals, but I gave him a technical in the finals because I what he did, and it, he deserved it. But And Charles wanted special treatment. He didn't need special special treatment because he was a good player. Yeah. Okay, but he wanted that, and when he didn't get it, he was going to come to me and at me. Uh, if I left Charles get away with something coming at me, that meant I had the mean left 12th player on the bench come at me and let him get away with it too. So right. I didn't let anybody. That come sounds at like me. such a dad thing to say to people. Yeah. Right? If I let you do it, I gotta <laughs> let everybody do and it. And after raising three boys that were football, four boys that were football players, you couldn't let that happen at the house. 
That's hilarious. But I was the only guy that gave him 10 technicals in one year. Or, I mean, not technicals. I threw him out of 10 games in one year. Oh, my gosh. And I probably only saw him maybe 15 times that whole season. But he's the only guy That's I hilarious. ever He's the only guy I ever threw out of a game who was shooting free throws. And uh, usually guys <laughs> like to be at the free throw line. But he decided to turn his head on the first free throw and call me a name. So oh. <laughs> I, I moved up three steps where I could read his lips. And he, damn, if he didn't do it again. And that time I said, get out. Wow. I so said, what happens then? Does somebody said, else shoot the free throw said, for him? The second it's a one? funny story because he set the ball down on the free throw line and walked directly to the locker room. And his coach at the time at uh, Philly was Matty Gukas. Yeah. And they were fighting for a playoff spot. And I'll never forget this. And so I, he called me an F-head. And so I said, <laughs> get out. And he put the ball on the free throw line and walked to the locker room. I've never seen anything like this. And here comes the coach, Mike, Mike, he's shooting free throws. How can you throw him out? And I says, and Maurice Cheeks was the captain of the team, and he was the guard on their team. Yeah. He turned to Maddie, and he says, Maddie, he called the man an F-head <laughs> like that. <laughs> <laughs> and her coach turned around and sat down. So then the other the coach on the other team got to pick somebody off of Maddie's bench to come out and shoot the free throws. So on. the other coach picks? Yeah, picks the replacement. Oh. Yeah. Huh. From, That's in the very pro game. interesting. So uh, that was that was kind of unique. So yeah, Charles and I had a pretty good pretty good history. My career is still going. In case you guys didn't know it, every once in a while, if you listen, Charles will start talking about officiating <laughs> yeah, yeah. in a game, and then he'll say, "Mike Mass, the worst official ever." <laughs> <laughs> so my career is still going. But are you guys are friendly now, or? Not, not really. No. I mean, I, I, I didn't invite him to my golf tournaments, and he's never invited me to anything he's doing, so I guess we're just existing. That's still funny. A love-hate relationship. <laughs> so that partially answers my other question. I was listening to the uh, the finals this year, and uh, one of the announcers said, you know, well, Kyle Korver, before he came to the Cavaliers, used to complain that LeBron, they gave him a free pass for just about everything. And then when he got on the Cavs, he was like, there's so much stuff they're missing. <laughs> so is, is there is there truth to that, or is that just, you know? Well, I, I'll tell you this. Uh, there wasn't that. I can tell you this for as a person. I used to always tell young referees as I was coaching and sort of uh, instructing them when they came in the league, I said, look, all you want to get out of this league when you retire, okay, is a good career and respect. If you do that, you've had a very successful career. And respect to me was, like I said, is calling the same thing, number 12 on the bench is Michael Jordan. And I got to say that, you know, people tend, we're all human, right? Okay, and if people are trying to be Michael Jordan's friend on the court, okay, they can't do that, can they? I mean, sure, you're in awe at some of the things he does. LeBron the same way, okay? But that don't mean that you take different routes to a fishing. And, yes, there there is some of that that goes on from the human standpoint. Because I see, and I work with referees, that we're actually trying to be friends of players. I didn't ever try to be a friend of a player, okay? I got players, some players through other people came to my golf tournament, okay? Larry Bird came to my golf tournament in the summertime. 
a lot of guys, Danny Manning, a lot of guys did because they believed in my cause, which was foster care and adoption. I got them to come there, but they didn't get any special treats, and I think that's what referees have to do. Don't try to be a friend because it's awful hard not to want to because, you know, like you guys are talking, oh, you refereed Michael Jordan. Yeah, he was one of 400 players in the league, and that's the way you got to look at it. Hmm. Makes sense. That's fascinating. Well, what are some of your favorite memories of refereeing? Like, be it a a specific game or a specific season or just some, you know, really interesting things that you saw firsthand? Yeah, I always tell people one of the best things I ever did was the three-point shot that uh, uh, I was involved in where Michael Jordan threw the ball and the guy made a three-pointer. I always tell people when I was doing doing some talks around the country about NBA and finals, uh, John, remember John Paxson? Oh, yeah. yeah. With uh, Bulls. I was in the finals one year, and uh, Jordan, they were playing Phoenix, and Jordan took the ball in the last second, fired it to Paxson. Paxson raised a three-pointer. Everybody was collapsing on Jordan. He finds Paxson. Ball's in the air, and it goes in, okay? And I always told people, I said, remember when we made that three-pointer, John? <laughs> and John looks at me like I'm crazy because John made the shot, but I signaled it was good. <laughs> <laughs> so that's about the biggest thrill I got, I guess. But uh, when you're calling something like that, working the finals was a – you could just get the aura about you and feel when you go to a finals game, it's different than even – uh, final playoff game in the second round. You can in the finals. I mean, everything is elevated like about sixteen levels. You know what I mean? And working in the finals, that you knew that every call, you really had to be on the tip of your toes and be your be your game had to be right there that night because of what was going on and what was at stake. And I remember we never had uh, the uh, instant replay back when I refed. Okay. And people ask me, what'd you think about? Well, I would, I would have loved to have it because guess what? I could have gone and looked at, looked at all the tough plays. I felt like I got a whole bunch right in my career, but I, I could go over there and maybe get close to being all right with that kind of thing. So I think it would have been a good thing because I always had in the back of my mind that on the last shot that was trying to tell whether it's still in the hand or out of the tips of his fingers, that meant the seventh game of the finals, and that's a world championship. I know one thing, and I told Yubi Brown this. I, I said, Yubi, if you're ever calling a game in the finals and I'm involved and I can't tell whether that ball's out or not, we're not allowed to go look at that, okay? I said, but I'm going to get my three referees together, and we're going to look. I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to go with my eyes to <laughs> yeah. say, like, hey, what the hell? You? And you got it right in front of you. Yeah. Okay, and you just either shake your head or no, <laughs> yes or no, and guess what? Guess what? We're going to get three of us and act like we made the decision, but really I used that instant so replay. Great. Wow. I, w- I, w- I had that in the back of my I never yeah. had to use it, but I would have done that to be right yeah. in the last shot of the finals in the NBA. Yes, I would have. Wow. Man. Then they could find me all they want, you know, but guess what? I would have been right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's so wow. great. Oh, man, what a great story. That yeah. Is. That's so, so awesome. You mentioned before, you know, I, I know you, you 
you had played basketball and around basketball for years and years, but when you get to the NBA, you are compelled, of course, to read the rule book. Are there a lot of things that are in there that that are different than this the garden variety rules of basketball, or is it? You'd be you'd be amazing. You'd be amazed at how many things are in one and in the other. Okay, the differences are okay. Like NBA came out with a three point play, college then went later. Okay, circle under the basket, secondary receiver, uh, defender, and things like that. But basic basketball, but traveling is the same. Okay, now I've gone through, and what happens is over the years, people accept inferior officiating. They accept this, and they accept that. If I had anything to do with officiating now, the one, uh, one thing I just... I'm a a total nut about is you hire good people, you teach and train them, and then you hold them accountable. And as as head of the union for many years in the NBA, the referees, I told the NBA, I don't care if you find referees. I don't care what you do. Hold us accountable. So that means that the cream rises to the top. The best referees get where? In the finals. But they had ulterior motives with the referees, okay? They wanted referees to be, quote, on their side when it came to union squabbles and things like that. But fine us, just like the players. Put our name in the paper. He missed this. He was fined one game. Or he was fined whatever it is. He missed a rule. That's not our job. We have to know that rule book backward and forward. But, okay, that's where you find the discretion comes in. And what guys do is they make calls, and before you know it, I'm going to give you a great example of this. Before you know it, coaches accept it, and it's wrong. Then it goes to the fans, and they accept it. And you talked about one which is traveling, okay? And the other one, I'll give you a good example. Remember the end of the finals where Jordan took his left arm and pushed Byron Russell? Yeah, yeah. Utah out of the way and scored it? Guess what? That was a defining moment for officials. If that guy on that game at that time would have called Michael Jordan, okay, for that offensive foul that happened, guess what? We would not be known as the guys that take care of the superstars, would we? Yeah. But he didn't. What did he call? Nothing. It's easy to put that whistle away. But what did the announcers say? I'm going to tell you exactly what they said. What a great play by Michael. <laughs> He created space. <laughs> Anytime you hear an announcer say he created space, that means he committed an offensive foul, but the referee didn't have the kahunis to call it. Wow. So you, so it was a foul? Absolute foul. Oh, I love wow. it. Wow. Absolute foul. Man, you no heard question. it. The tea is heard it here. here. I mean, that was, that was the Michael the Jordan off. who yeah. was the NBA pushed off. And that yeah. shot defined his legacy as much as yeah. as the it one over the Elo and yeah. everything. Yeah. I that mean, that was it. that's right at the top of. That's his what we legacy. all dreamed to make him when we grew up, right? The last yeah, shot man. in the finals. Yeah, because he's standing there still with his arm in the air, watching it go in. Just think what would have happened if he'd have called the right call, offensive foul. Oh, Jordan would have went berserk, and we'd have had the second technical finals. <laughs> But that what you were saying about Barkley throwing him out in the middle of shooting free throws. I mean, right. how, did you ever think you were going to have to use that rule? Or how, no. you know, is that is there are there rules like that where you're like, 
you have to huddle up and say, this never happens. I don't know what to do here. That's exactly right. I had another one. The only other, the two guys that I had the most trouble with, were Charles Barkley and the Big E, Elvin Hayes. I don't know if you, yeah, you're, you're yeah, kind of young yeah. to remember no, that. I know it Washington is. Bullets. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, my thing with with Elvin Hayes was uh, one night we're refereeing, and I'm just a young referee, but the veterans, they take, they try to, they try to test the, the rookies, like I said before. But anyway, we got a game in Washington, D.C., and I'm working with Jack Madden. Never forget it. He throws the opening tip up. And Elvin and I had some technical issues before where I hit him with technicals, and he didn't care for me, and I just refereed and didn't go after him or nothing like that. I didn't go after anybody. They came to me. But anyway, throw the ball up, and Elvin Hayes steals the tap. Now, he's playing with Wes Unseld. And I learned early yeah. on what you do if you got trouble with Wes, uh, with uh, Elvin Hayes, you go to Wes and you say, Wes, you want him to play tonight or do you want me to get rid of him? Because that's Wes's teammate. And Wes knew that they needed Elvin to score points. Wes would get the rebounds, but Elvin would score. And Wes would go over and have a little talk with Elvin, and Elvin would calm down. Okay? He's going to throw you out, Elvin. Yeah, that's exactly right, because Wes knew he wanted him in. And I just say to Wes, I said, I said, Wes, you want him to stay tonight? And he knew exactly what I was talking about. You'd see him walk across the foul line and say whatever he said, and then he'd turn around and walk back. I never heard it, but I knew what, or Elvin was all right. But anyway, we start the game, and Elvin steals a tap. And so I'm the young referee, and that's, that's, that's another thing. How many stolen taps do you see called in college or the pros? When defending somebody? No, just throwing a jump ball up. And who steals it oh, before? Before it's, it's on its way back. You, no, yeah, you got to wait till it gets to its highest point that yeah. you can tip. Yeah, it. yeah. You know what I tell the players at UC? Steal every tap. <laughs> Start the game. Watch and see if you don't see that now. You see, mm-hmm. we steal it before it almost gets out of the ref's hand. Why? It's never called. I called that every other game because that's illegal. Okay. Wow. But watch it. They let it go because yeah. it's accepted. Nobody says nothing about it. They don't get in trouble. It's like jaywalking. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So you steal the tap, and guess what? You see, last, not the year before last, we won a game on that. And what it comes down to is if you steal the opening tap, you got one possession, right? You stole the tap. All right, then what's it go to? Jump balls every other. There's no more tosses in college. Okay? If If you got the first possession... What you do when you steal it, they then the, the other team get that. If it ends in odd numbers, what happened? It's on you. You got one extra ju- uh, possession the game, didn't you? Yeah. Hmm. Well, we had we did that one game, and Troy Copain, when he was playing, we came down with the ball, last shot coming, okay? And there was 53 seconds on the clock, 30 seconds shot clock, right? We come down with 53 with about six seconds or something, we take a shot, it ain't even worth, it's nothing. It's a bad shot, okay? We take it, and it gets wedged in the rim. Now the clock is under 30. It's wedged in the rim. Who gets the ball? Well, on alternating error? things, it's an odd one. We get it. So now we get it with 20-some seconds. That means we get the last shot. That other team should have got the last shot. Yeah. Okay, but we stole the tap. Yeah. Okay. So guess what? We got the ball back and we scored with one second and won the game. And I, I'm going crazy. And Mickey asked me, "What's the matter?" I said, "Mick, we got the odd 
possession. And I said, we got the last two possessions because of it. And we scored a winning basket. It gave us a win. Now, that brings up what I want to talk to you about next. You say we, as you see, and, and, and the way you talk about Mick. Mick spent some time at your house as well. Is that correct? That's true. So do you want to explain the relationship that you have with Mick Cronin and how that started? My kids played ball with Mick from the time they were like, uh, I guess, eight, nine years old. And uh, I, I built a, an NBA basket in my side yard uh, at my old house or my backyard at my old house. And I put up a glass backboard. And this was before anybody ever dreamed of putting this kind of stuff in your house. But anyway, Mickey would always come over and play. He was a good basketball player. And uh, he was always the point guard on the teams. But we came over, and uh, Mickey grew up with my kids playing ball. And when they got older, they were in college at this time, uh, Mickey and his dad uh, got in a little squabble over uh, something and kicked Mickey out of the house, okay? It was just a temporary thing, get out kind of deal. And so Mickey came over, and he spent a summer in my basement living there. Oh my gosh! So uh, we called it the Bat Cave, and him and my son Monty lived down there. They were good friends, and uh, Mick Mick had many an adventure with my son Monty on the uh, uh, the entertainment circle at nights in uh, in my basement. <laughs> and I was about ready to kick them both out, but <laughs> but he he was like a sort of like a foster kid for me for a couple months or something in my basement. But then he went back home, and thank God, so everything was okay. But <laughs> since then, we sort of been tied to the hip. Yeah, that's great. And, and the, he's, like, he's one of those guys that if you only see the highlights of him, you know, the way that a lot of the media tends to do to show him popping off, and, you know, if, you, if you've never spent time around him, he's – He's such a good dude, and he's very well spoken, and he knows the game, knows the and game. he's honest, and he like, you know, it was one of those things where I had I had kind of had unfairly had my mind made up about him just based on the clips I saw on TV or how he was acting during games, and I'd never been around him personally, and and he he changed my mind about him by just being. Clo- like closer to him at certain events and and your golf event and things of that nature that man, he's just a, a good dude and man he really does know the game he's a he's he's fun to be around and what people see like that i mean he's a tough uh disciplinarian but uh mick has a philosophy about the people he recruits and uh, this if you notice the kind of guys he recruits he recruits tough kids and uh he's able to handle them and he's able to make them see his way and uh, if they don't they get the highway but i'm telling you this he does know the game and he his philosophy is very successful and it's a philosophy that'll keep him successful too let's talk about the golf tournament because that's you know when i first met you um i was just starting to get invited to be a celebrity in local <laughs> golf events and uh and so i had seen a couple of them firsthand but I'd never seen anything like yours. You, for the for a long time, had the most popular and profitable golf event in the city. You're at you're at Kings Islands Golf Course, which had twenty two holes. Twenty two holes at that. Well, they had eighteen. They dropped it to eighteen, but they had four holes that they kept the teach on. Yeah, and I had to use those holes too. So he had 
a morning flight with two groups on 22 holes, and then an afternoon flight with two groups on 22 holes. Wow. Playing in his golf tournament to raise money for the Mathis Foundation. And you had all kinds of celebrities. That's the other thing. is a lot. Like, I'm considered a celebrity at the local <laughs> events. He had legitimate celebrities <laughs> at, at his events. He had, you were a celebrity, my friend. Thank you. He had... He had uh, and it was it was such a crazy mix of people. Like I've always wanted to know, like how do you get Pete Weber and professional bowlers and <laughs> hockey players? It wasn't like he just called on his basketball contacts. I mean, it was football, baseball, hockey, bowling. You had everybody there. How how did that start? How did it grow to where it did? Well, it started at a at a golf course called Blue Ash, and uh, my very first year, Larry Bird came to the tournament. And that really set it off quite a bit. And one of the things that happened at that uh, tournament was uh, Sister Rose at Xavier University was uh, helping uh, our foster kids and uh, helping us get kids into college and teaching them so they could pass the test. And she was there at the auction. We had in a tent. I mean, it was a tent there at Blue Ash Golf Course. And Larry Bird had his jersey up and it was autographed and he was there. And uh, Sister Rose adored Larry Bird, okay? And so Sister Rose is sitting in the audience, and, you know, she she don't have the biggest pocketbook in the world, but she's bidding on Larry Bird's jersey. And every time she would bid, Larry Bird would go, these are the things that happen at your golf tournament that sort of spur other things on. Every time she would say 100, Larry would say 200. On his own jersey? On his own jersey. And Sister, <laughs> and sister Rose sister Rose would sit there and spoil it. She'd go, oh, my God. Oh, my God. She'd go, two, 300. Okay. And Larry go, 400. Like this. And this thing got up to, like, about 600. And Sister Rose just, she had some friends there, and they were all going together, the other nuns. And finally, she says, I can't do it. I can't do it. Oh, God will never forgive me. <laughs> And Larry Bird, the, the bid was at six or seven hundred. Larry Bird went three thousand, <laughs> like that. And so I was up there, and I said, "Sorry, sister." I said, "We're going to take the three thousand. Wow! And Larry Bird walked up there, and it was one of the neatest things I've ever seen. And I'll never forget. It. He walked up there, and he got his jersey, and he came back. He went right to Sister Rose, and he put it on her. It oh. says, "Sister, this is yours." And we got 3000 Sister Rose got the jersey for free. And I thought, gee, how did he think about doing something like that? You know what I mean? Yeah. But from that, that word spread. And that was our very first one. We we did There we had like 12 foursomes on 18 holes, okay? And from that it grew to, uh, like he said, we had uh, uh, over 400 golfers in one day that, that teed off. You know, up at Kings Island. Wow. And we had NBA and, like I said, hockey. We had uh, uh, comedians. We had <laughs> we had everybody you can imagine. And, but the best thing was the way I always judge my celebrities is I would talk to the teams. You know, each year when I was calling them to ask them to please donate and come back, those are the people that paid. And I'd call them, okay, and I'd ask about how was your experience with the guy you were last year. And that when they all told me, oh, give me Adrian Smith, give me Josh Snead again, they didn't care if Josh could make a putt, but they had 
three hours. I could, for the four, record, I could. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, three or four hours out there with them. Yeah. Okay, and they enjoyed it, and guess what? They're going to bring them guys back because my whenever I we took off for the golf course on the, you know, give the instructions, we take off, I'd make all the, you know, I said to the celebrities, everybody stand up, and the celebrities would all stand up from their golf carts, and I'd say, everybody, let's thank the celebrities for giving of their time. Okay, then I'd make the celebrities turn around and I'd let the golfers all stand up and I'll say, now these are the guys that made it possible for you to play free golf today. So <laughs> let's give these guys a hand. Yeah. So, but I mean, it was just a fun thing. But it was really an event, did. though. Yeah. I mean, don't sell it short. I mean, yeah. we would do a dinner the night before with right. this uh, amazing silent auction for the celebrities and some of the teams. And we, you know, that's what I loved was watching the celebrities bid on. Their own uh, stuff. Or, or, you know what I mean? Uh, like, you know, I mean, I I got a Joey Votto jersey hanging in my basement. I got a Jason Kidd jersey. Um, you know, and it was, you had those kind of connections that, you know, you would call on your people and, and you know, and, I, and I'll, I would tell, say this right in front of you. Like, you know, the, the little bit of interaction I've had with NBA people who know you, which is minor because we don't even have a team here. They love you, you know. Oh, I did my bachelor party in Arizona. And uh, it was the first year that the Reds had spring training out there. It was 2010. And uh, the Suns had a home game. And I said something to Mike. I said, hey, I don't know if you know anybody in Phoenix, but, uh, you know, I, should I, is it worth going to a Suns game? He called me right back. He said, so-and-so hooked you up and you need to call her. And I call her and she said, anything for Mike. Wow. There you go. So <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, man. So eventually the Mathis Foundation was joined up with lighthouse youth services right is that correct yep and um so tell us a little bit about what what you're doing now um to continue your legacy in this city well to be honest uh we still uh we combined with four years ago we combined our foster care and adoption agency uh with lighthouse youth services my wife had done some volunteer work for them and they were the best foster care and adoption agency by far here in the tri-state area so we combined all of our foster parents and our foster kids under their umbrella because we were we're both 70 some years old and all my kids were all over the country i had one in miami one in west virginia i had one in kentucky and one somewhere else but none of my kids were going to be here my first son marty ran it for a first couple years but then my wife and i got totally involved and uh but anyway by by doing that we were going to keep the thing going and my wife then still with the lighthouse she still volunteers and uh, we had put a lot of kids through high school all of our kids that we had and that was 125 foster kids graduated high school that's because we always felt the biggest thing was a mentor not just a mentor till they're 18 a mentor for life, we called it. You know, once you take this child on, we expect you to stay with that child through his entire life in terms of when he gets to be 18 and he gets emancipated, that don't end your job. You know, he's still going to need help to what? Go out and have life skills to how to get an apartment to live and all that other. So it worked out real well. And we did put uh, 10 kids through college that graduated. That's amazing. And uh, the best, biggest day of my life was, uh, wasn't when my one of my four kids graduated from college. Uh, all of them did, thank God. But it was the day that I graduated a, a homeless girl 
from Mount St. Mary's College, a girl that was going to have to be uh, put into a, it wasn't an orphanage at the time, but it was going to be really some some deep foster care. But some family we found the family at Roger Bacon High School that let them her live with them so she could graduate Roger Bacon. And then she moved to Mount St. Joe, and her home was the dormitory at Mount St. Joe. She never left that. She didn't have any place else to go, so she stayed there. The nuns took care of her there, okay, when school wasn't in. And then she graduated from there, and guess what? She went to work in special education for other kids. Huh. And uh, that was, I, I actually had tears in my eyes that day when we graduated. But anyway, uh, from there, we... Uh, uh, now, uh, we still do work with that. Uh, I help over at UC with the basketball program. I'm sort of an unofficial kind of person. I, they call it refereeing, but I don't referee. I can't get up and down the floor like that. But what I do is I teach players how to foul how to get away with fouls, <laughs> all the tricks. You're like Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah, all the, uh, yeah, all the guys that trick me, this. I can teach the, there you go. the habits. <laughs> like I tell them, steal the first tip. Yeah, every that's time. <laughs> that's amazing. I did have one question. Like way back at the beginning, you were talking about, and this kind of makes sense because this happens in other sports too. That the uh, the officials are responsible for more than just enforcing the rules of the game. When you got to the arena, what was a typical day? What time do you get to the arena? What all did you have to do? Because you mentioned about making sure the basketballs were properly inflated and the building temperature was right. What all was involved when on game day? Well, I, I was just kidding about that. Uh, I uh, think he the, was saying that like anybody would blame you. Yeah, they blamed me for that. I know, but, in, but, you know, the, but what, was under, what was under yeah, your... Exactly. Well, what we do, we had yeah. to, on a day off, we had to get to the town the night before, Okay. And we know what hotel we're staying at. We had our own hotel list, and we'd always communicate with your partner. We didn't have the same partner every night, like baseball. Baseball, they stay together all summer, that crew. I We had a thing where we had four crews, okay, but they were 15 or 16 people each. And then with them four crews, I would always, I was a, let's say I was a crew chief there, okay, I'd work with one of referee ones and one of the referee twos in that 15-man team. Okay, but not the same one every night, never the same one. I'd go to another town, and I'd get another one, different one over. You know, that's the way we met up and everything. But anyway, that's the way basketball does it. But anyway, we get in a night before, and uh, then we'd have a meeting the next morning at noon, okay, and we'd go over all the rules for that day. And what I meant by that, the NBA did a thing with the computers. They made us all have computers. Okay, they got them for us. Okay, and we would come in and look at the plays from the night before. We already had them on our computer as a group. We'd look on that and see maybe eight or ten plays, and we'd have to report on them. But we got to look at them and see we want it called this way. Okay, we want this play called this way. And it was always according to the rules, but it also had a lot of other things involved in it too. But that's what college don't do. They have enough trouble getting from game to game, and they work six or seven nights a week. We only work three nights a week. That was it. Oh. Okay. And we travel because I defy you to pack your bag and go seven cities around the country. Don't even work the game. Just pack, unpack, go, you know, sleep in a different bed. The whole, you, you're dead. You're dead tired by the time, you, you know, four days is up. These guys go seven nights a week. And that's what? That's because of their paycheck. Well, anyway, 
Then you get there and you go through that and you answer it all and you send it in. You have dinner, lunch together, then take a nap, and then you get up about 5 o'clock and go to the games. We'd always get there. We Our job, We they told us an hour and a half, but we always got there closer to two hours before the game. And what we would do again is we'd have a meeting there about the two teams that we're, we're having that night so it's fresh in our mind. Okay, hey, look, these two guys got in a fight three nights ago. Okay, let's keep our eye on there, make sure nothing happens there, you know. You don't have to just referee them, but you got to make sure one of your eyes is on them too. Okay, and know what's going on, know what the other thing, and any notes from the NBA that came in that day. You would look at those also and get a heads up. And then we would uh, work the game, and then uh, we'd uh, – I had a little habit, I'll tell you, that I used to always do. There's only about eight plays in a game that are really good plays for you to learn something from as a referee. And I'd always have a little notepad in my back pocket. And during a timeout, you could see me. I'd write down 2-12 second quarter. And then the next one would be 8-15 of the third quarter. These are special plays that I think we can learn from. And we would go over those in the locker room. We all had those uh, Super 8 little deals like that on the little tapes. And we could go in there, and I could go zip 2-12 first quarter. And... We would learn from that play. Why did we miss this? Okay, how should this been called? In our own game. And then we'd go over those six or eight before we left the locker room. Wow. So I always call that the teaching period. But there was much more teaching and video work that the NBA instituted and we instituted ourselves that made us better referees. So to kind of put, you know, what we try to do with these podcasts is, and we've done it, in folds on this one it's tell stories that no matter when someone hears it if it's the day it comes out or five years from now it'll still be entertaining to listen to we've certainly accomplished that absolutely today. yeah but i would be remiss if i didn't have a chance to talk to you uh before we wrap up about your thoughts of the nba right now versus when you were reffing because it feels like so much has changed yeah. in terms of you know, superstars joining up together and, you know, just the way the game is played. It seems like it's never been more popular in terms of, like, fans and numbers and international how players. many superstars there are yeah. in the league. Um, but what do you care to share thoughts on, on, you know, players jumping cities like they didn't used to or just what you like better about the game today or, or, or what you wish hadn't changed from when you were reffing? Well, let's take that last one you talked about a little bit first there. You know, it never was our job as referees to, to get involved in who's on what team and all the other thing. We're, we're, we're paid to observe the talent and what they do on the court. But it did it has affected the game, okay? Uh, it's, it's a different game today. Then when I came in in 76, okay, I got I was pretty blessed. I got to see Dr. J's full career in the NBA. I got to see Larry and Magic's full career, and I got to see Michael's full career. Now, people always want me to, I guess, compare LeBron with Michael or to Kobe or somebody yeah. like that or Kevin Durant. You know, I, I'm, I'm not, like I told you before, I said that 
early on that Larry Bird would never make it in the NBA. He was too slow, all this other stuff. Well, that's a great judge of talent, Mike. <laughs> but when he came in there, I mean, he changed my mind, of course. But I'm just saying that's not really our job. Uh, but it has had an effect on the game. And, and the way I say that is back in the days of Dr. J and Larry and Magic, okay, it was a, a game of fundamentals, and it was a game of, uh, I'd say, purer basketball because since then there's been numerous rule changes. And what are the rule changes almost all about? They're always about more points, more dunking. They make the lane wider. Why? They want that open. So we got driving, fallacious dunks. Yeah. Okay. So that has changed the game. Now, what, there were no two or two better passers, passers in the world. They talk about good passers now. My son and I, who was a coach in the NBA, my one son, we, we talk about this all the time. And it's about the guy, the guys before, okay, the two greater, greatest passers I've ever seen are Larry and Magic, okay? But they're good passers today, but not like that, okay? And everything today is dunking okay and pete why is that pete and you're talking about increased attendance they love that they love that three-pointer okay so now coaches are saying we don't want the other team to get free throws we don't want the other team to get three pointers okay that's what we're going to say and layups we stop those three the game's over we win okay so that's what it's boiled down to right now Everybody wants a three-pointer, a number four guy. Number four guys before were rebounders. Now they're shooters. Four, you got four man goes out. Every team wants a four man that can go out, get behind the line, and nail three-pointers. <laughs> or a five man yeah. even. Or don't even play a five man. There are – you look back now. I can remember all the good big guys. I mean, I got to see Kareem. I got to see Elijah on. I got to see Ewing. Shaq. You, yeah, yeah, you'd Shaq. You just go one after another. But then all of a sudden they start telling me, well, who's the center nowadays? And I still follow basketball, and I have a hard time. <laughs> right. Okay? Yeah, because LeBron James is a he'll play five. power forward. That yeah, looks like he'll a point play guard. four. Yeah. He can guard every position. Well, now, look, we talk LeBron James. I will say this. I never got the referee, but I've seen him in person when my son was coaching Dallas and they beat him in the finals at Miami. And I'm going to tell you what, there, there's never been a body like that. This guy is six foot nine and he is muscles from top to bottom. Okay. And he can drive, you know how I can, I, I laugh. My son was in charge of defending him in uh, the final game. And my son said, I said, what were you guys doing to him out there? He said, yeah, we just came up with something called the corral. And it was his idea. We went at him, begging him to shoot three-pointers in them days because he couldn't make them. So they didn't triple-team him and get on and try to steal the ball. Just corralling. Don't let him drive because if that 6'9 body gets open going to the hole, you're in trouble. Yeah. Can't stop that, okay? But let him shoot the three, okay? And he wasn't making them. And that's how they won it. But now, they, what did LeBron do after that? Worked on his three points. Yeah. He worked yeah. on it. Now he can shoot them. Can't he? he can yeah. shoot yeah. them very well. Absolutely. Okay, and guess what? 
Now that's why people have any, they, what are you going to do? You're yeah. going to give him a three? You're going to let him drive? He's going to kill you no matter what. But anyway, the game has changed. Uh, I would say the biggest thing is it is now close to be basically a dunking game, which is exciting dunks in your face. Everything's developing on that yeah. instead of now. I saw Larry Bird one time in a corner take the ball and fake down the baseline like he was passing into the post from on the baseline like that. And the guy guarding him, it was such a great fake. The guy guarding him turned around, see where the hell the ball was. Larry still had the ball. That's pretty good fake, isn't it? Yeah. And then guess what Larry did? Boom, three-pointer. Okay? And that's unbelievable, some of the passes he would make. And guess what? He was slowing. Okay? That's when I said, oh, he'll never make it. That guy's one of the greatest passers ever. But his shot, if you watched his shot, his shot was like this. Yeah. Guess what his fake was? All the way to here. And guys yeah. are leaping? Well, the three of us can get around him. Yeah. All of us at one time. Yeah. If a guy's in the air, right? But, I mean, that's the that's the thing that I see that's missing. Not that I'm saying the game is bad. You just said about well, the popularity. It's out of this world. Okay? And guess what, though? The uh, other thing about the European players, you know, we have half of our coaching staffs in Europe and all over the world looking for players. Now, that never happened before. You might have one or two in a league. Yeah. Now every team. I remember team, when Tony Kukoc came over. It know, was like a huge deal. That one of the like, starters. What? Croatia yeah. guy coming <laughs> to the NBA? Where's Croatia? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, awesome, man. Mike, I can't thank you enough for being in here with us today. The last thing is uh, when we do a show, we let our guest pick a word that is a promotional code that people can use until the next episode comes out. It'll save them 20% off their order. So if you could pick one word that people can use, what word would you pick? No, I don't know. The thing that, uh, the thing that we were talking about is uh, before that's near and dear to my heart is uh, accountability love it all right i love it so if you're listening you can go to uh, our website or any of our stores yep and uh and say the word accountability or type it in as the promo code it'll save you 20 percent on your order uh, until the next episode comes out mike mathis nba referee pit boss <laughs> golf <laughs> tournament coach extraordinaire <laughs> coach advisor of i'm happy to say a friend thank you for being here i love you man pleasure my pleasure thanks nice meeting you Mike Mathis, quite a life, right? Fascinating stuff. The Mathis Foundation, I should note, merged with Lighthouse, as you heard, uh, Lighthouse Youth Services here in town a few years ago. So if you're interested in finding out more about foster care, you can go to lys.org. Simple as that. There you go. Today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They are from Philadelphia. And you can find them on Facebook. And, of course, you can find that song on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your music. Find Vintage Tees from Philadelphia and other great cities like Cleveland, Louisville, Pittsburgh, Seattle, Portland, and more at OldSchoolShirts.com. 
shirts.com. We have a lot of basketball-related shirts on both sites, uh, mostly ABA-related. Uh, we're not allowed to sell Cincinnati Royal stuff anymore because we don't have a license. But we do have some other, uh, we have like the old Cincinnati Slammers from the CBA, and uh, we have CBA shirts uh, on the uh, oldschoolshirts.com site, so check all of those out. And in case you missed it, the promo code for this episode is accountability, and you can take 20% off your entire order when you use that code at cincyshirts.com or oldschoolshirts.com. You can also come into the stores and say, I'd like to use the code accountability, and then you save 20% right there on the spot. And that's at our brick-and-mortar stores there in OTR, Hyde Park, and now Loveland. Stop in and see us at any of our three locations. Follow all our social channels like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Uh, tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye. I said goodbye